This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome to Talking TV. I'm Jake Cantor. This episode, the future's bright, the future's the BBC. We assess why even strictly judge Craig Revel Horwood might have been impressed by Tony Hall's efforts to get the corporation on the front foot this week. Talking of which, as Strictly goes toe-to-toe with the first live X Factor of the year this Saturday, broadcast ratings guru Stephen Price is with us to give both entertainment beasts a thorough health check. Also on the show, trading has been brisk at MIPCOM this week, but we managed to grab some time with writer Paul Unwin, who has been in Cannes promoting his ITV drama Breathless. And finally, a taste of what's hitting the box over the next two weeks. Not least, Stephen Fry confronting homophobia around the world on BBC Two. Ear candy galore. Lisa Campbell and Stephen Price are with me. Hello. And Lisa, you're good? Yes, great, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Nice one. Okay, we'll crack on. Uh, First up, a who's who of television executives turned out this week to hear Tony Hall deliver his first major speech since becoming BBC Director General in April. His broad brush address laid out a decade-long path for the corporation and the paving slabs were connected by a single priority, to forge much closer personal relationships with audiences. A reinvented iPlayer will become the front door to the BBC, while other new digital services such as Download to Own Portal BBC Store will increase audience touch points. And what about that thing called television? Well, Hall said BBC One will be the broadcaster's calling card and the centrepiece for live events which will receive the Olympics treatment. Here's the man himself explaining the BBC's direction of travel. But you've also noticed another trend towards a much more personal BBC. Something different perhaps for every single one of us. Not one to everyone, but also one to one. And if we get these ideas right, we'll be taking a step into new territory. We'll be inviting the audience into the BBC No longer a paternalistic BBC, but a personal one. Audiences will be invited to sign in. They'll get personalised recommendations. They'll be able to rate our programmes, to discuss, participate and vote. That will influence what we commission, when we schedule and also how we run the BBC. They can become their own schedulers, but our next creators, our future innovators. This is the start of something. I don't know where we'll end up, but I want to start the conversation about this now. At the moment, we treat audiences like licence fee payers. We should be treating them like owners. And that's what I meant when I said we wouldn't be the BBC, we would be my BBC, our BBC. The public owns us and that is what it needs to feel like. And that was Tony Hall. Uh, Stephen, Hall said there that he wanted audiences to become... Uh, their own schedulers. Yes. What, what do you make of that? It's a good idea. Scheduling a TV channel is a bit more than just putting programmes in a particular order, though. You know, there's uh, delivery issues and there's managing a massive budget and there's sort of planning a strategy. But, um, you know, if people have uh, more... Uh, if people can be bothered in their daily lives to organise programming, uh, then great. I don't think it'll uh, make any difference to schedulers who are professionals. Um, Were you surprised that linear television got such a cursory mention in this speech? Um, maybe. I mean, it's not, it's not going to go away, linear TV. Uh, most people still watch TV as it goes out, as it's transmitted, and BBC One are going to introduce a plus one channel 
which they probably should have done a while ago, actually, and that's only it's only right and reasonable that they do that. Um, but the future, the sort of the future of TV and the future of scheduling and the future of how programming and content is organised uh, probably will run alongside um, the, the linear schedule, if you like, rather than necessarily replace it. So the linear schedule will c continue, but there has to be an emphasis on the other services because they're not going to go away. And the better they're managed, and the more you're in charge of them, the better. Yeah, Lisa. I mean, did, do you think he achieved what he wanted to in, in getting the the BBC on the front foot this week? Um, yeah, I think it was a pretty successful attempt at that. And, and importantly, he acknowledged the mistakes of the past and said, "We'll learn from them, and, and then we'll move on." And um, you know, it'd be wrong to talk about the future without recognising the serious failings that had taken place. Um, but, but you know, he moved on swiftly, and then it was a very, very positive message. I mean, it was, you know, iPlayer will be the best online TV service in the world. The BBC will be the preeminent provider of trusted news worldwide um, Britain will uh, it will be Britain's catalyst for creativity um, and you know it, I think it was very uplifting I think it was passionate it, it really laid out the case for the the role of the BBC in Britain and the world and you kind of wanted to punch the air and sing Lord Britannia <laughs> at the end maybe I think, not I think but, uh, <laughs> the entire room of BBC staff wanted to do that I mean I, I was in the room and it was it was kind of hard not to be swept up in it a bit I mean he clearly been practicing quite heavily it was very polished uh, the vts were excellent in explaining and illustrating the points that he was making and i think people came out genuinely inspired but do you think there was enough substance to it well i think the the idea of the the two-way relationship with the audience is is a good one and it's and i think you know that's exactly the kind of relationship the bbc should be having you know a bit a bit less auntie a bit more new best friend in in this world we're in now <laughs> yeah. um and and I, you know and i do think the the idea of the iplayer as the front door to the bbc it could be genuinely transformative i think it does raise questions about the license fee um you know the idea that you're sort of unbundling the the bbc in this way that people online are used to subscriptions and if I can pick and choose my BBC, well, I, I want to pay for those bits and maybe not all the other bits. And um, so I don't know. I, th I think it's interesting. The BBC thinks this adds value and there won't be questions around the licence fee. I'm, I'm not so sure. I think I think there might be. Um, I, I think the, the other thing that every successive DG talks about is bureaucracy and the layers and wanting to simplify things and we've heard this millions of yeah. times and of course McKinsey's are, are in there now and I think we just have to hope that they will prove that they have value for money and and we'll sort this out but how many times do we hear this and and in fact we spoke to um, Sir John Tuser this week at the um, former head of BBC World Service and I think he said this was one of the greatest challenges for Tony Hall this ungluing the BBC's ghastly internal bureaucracy as he described it. Yeah, and it's uh, something the BBC needs to do and quick because hidden away and in the detail of all his grand vision was the fact that the BBC has to save £100 million a year on top of the 20% delivering quality first cuts already. Uh, I mean, that was supposedly greeted by audible groans around the BBC. I mean, is this achievable, do you think, Stephen? Uh, where is it coming from? That is the question I think they'll be asking themselves and <clears throat> is... Where does this extra hundred million pounds come from? You know, the budgets, program budgets, can't be cut anymore, surely. And it maybe comes down back to the point about bureaucracy. Uh, we've heard that all before as well. So it's it's going to have to come from somewhere. It's where that's coming from, which is a and huge also the, the things he highlighted as wanting more of. You know, the big live events, the Olympics treatment of of yeah. arts and things. I mean, they're really expensive. Yeah. Where is that money coming from? Yeah. And on that high note, we'll yes. uh, we'll move away from the BBC uh, because brace yourself. 
TV's annual entertainment tussle is about to heat up as the X Factor goes live this weekend. Yes, acts including Tamira Foster and Kings and Road will sing for their supper on ITV. But its ratings are still declining and the format changes have fallen flat. Uh, has it now been supplanted by Strictly Come Dancing as the UK's biggest show? Um, let's have some numbers, shall we? X Factor averaged uh, a live audience so far this year of 8.9 million, uh, a marginal decline on the 9.1 million that watched over the same period in 2012. Strictly, meanwhile, has seen its average live audience grow nearly 5% year on year from 8.3 to 8.7 million. Uh, now, this is all subject to change, of course, and I believe you've got some thoughts on that, Stephen. Well, actually, it's funny, actually, the X Factor in particular has sort of so far sort of fallen into two uh, areas, really. The the auditions are up significantly, around about 6%, uh, but Boot Camp and Judges House are down on the same shows last year. So ITV will be sort of stroking their chin, thinking, all right, that's all right, as long as um, the uh, live shows perform. The live shows are the sort of flagship part of the series. Um, they're long, they're expensive, uh, they have lots of uh, juicy uh, commercial breaks in them, they're a huge revenue earner, um, and they're the ones that are going to have to perform. Um, so any sort of sign of decline along uh, in the live shows will be worrying. Um, but what ITV obviously will be hoping for, well, minimum flat, um, but uh, but to be more akin to the audition shows and performance. One interesting sort of um, signal of how they feel about it might be as simple as the time it starts, because um, it's on eight o'clock uh, this week, and there's a half hour uh, overlap with Strictly, um, and so ITV are going right. We're we're confident. Off we trot, and. Um, Last year, uh, I think on four occasions, the, the time slipped around to about 20 past eight, and I think one time was at 25 past eight. And what that's about is trying to avoid having too many commercial breaks against Strictly. Because whilst audience share is important, and it means you can uh, sort of boast about it, uh, for a commercial broadcaster like ITV, it's about impacts, which is what advertisers buy, which is uh, what appear in commercial breaks. So if X Factor starts to not perform as well as maybe last year, uh, it'd be worth just noting to see what time the Saturday show starts. Lisa, it, it can be quite easy to lose a bit of perspective with The X Factor. I mean, it's still a massive show for ITV. It is, and it's a really impressive show. I think when you watch it, you're completely wowed by the production values. And every year you think, well, it can't possibly get any bigger and better and shinier than it than it was before. But, you know, you're, you're, you are. You're pretty wowed. You sort of sit there and, you know, this year looking at the impressive New York skyline behind, um, you know, Gary and, and Antigua and guests like Mary J. Blige. I mean, you know, there's, there's clearly a lot of money thrown at this and... Um, and it does really suck you in once you once you start watching for five minutes. Then yeah. you know it, it it works. It still works. And what about Strictly? It seems to be more of the same. Yeah, Strictly. Well, they've hit a formula, they've hit a groove, and uh, you know they are they are on it, and um, it's working really well for them. But uh, you know they are essentially the two programs are separate. Twenty million people watch the two. You know, not at the same time, but you know that's a lot of people on a Saturday night. Um, and uh, the sort of the formula of the Saturday night works. Um, X Factor performs slightly better on a Sunday, which is sort of quite interesting, actually. Um, but uh, Strictly is 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 a strong show. I mean, it had its own hiccups a few years ago when it was sort yeah. of slipping into seven millions and something. 
What's changed? Do you think? Have they got? Are they? Are they improving the alchemy of the guests? Well, the guest, often the character of the guest is so important, and the scale. I think they sort of spent more money on it. You know, I, I was pretty underwhelmed by the celebrity lineup this year. But once again, once the mm. show starts and you get sucked in, yeah. the, the star power actually becomes irrelevant, and it is about. Yeah, the competition, and yeah. but I don't know, maybe sort of less about the dancing in some ways because it's the viewers are really interested in the journey, and you watch it this year and you really notice how the celebrities are very much um, trying to endear themselves to the public. I mean, you look at Denise Van Outen last year, and she was by far and away the, the best dancer, but sh- she wasn't really likable because I think mm. she was almost too good right from the beginning, and people want that sort of journey of they're terrible and then you see some progression and yeah. they hit a blip. And so it, it's quite fascinating about how all those sort of backstories feed into, you know, the dancing as well. Yeah, you, okay. root, you know, you root for people, don't you? Sitting there shouting at Absolutely. Tony. Come on! Yeah. Tony Jacqueline, for goodness sake, <laughs> move about a bit. Well, Tony didn't have a great ride, but um, <laughs> that's your news for this week. And my thanks to Lisa and Stephen. It's that time again when television heads on its biannual jaunt to Cannes for the second of the MIP markets, MIPCOM. Aside from CBB's signing up the Cookie Monster, the week has been short of revelations. Maybe that's because programming traders were heads down getting on with business, or perhaps they were at the bar. Either way, one of those promenading the croisette was casualty creator Paul Unwin, in town to plug his new period gynaecology drama Breathless, which launched on ITV this week. Set in 1961, the doctors are dashing, the nurses are beautiful, the sexual revolution is due any moment, but for now, abortion is illegal. Nurse Wilson. Sir. You've been warned to be cautious around doctors. Mr Powell, whatever you may think, what I found myself involved in last night was not only illegal... Forget it. It never happened. That patient had made a mistake. I can help. The law... Makes miserable lives and miserable women, whoever they are. As easy as that? I didn't say it was easy, but it's what I believe. Look, at least take the money you earned. Dr. Enderbury's never at his best agitated. Good afternoon, Mr. Powell. Broadcast Deputy Editor Chris Curtis caught up with the Breathless director, producer and writer Paul Unwin and began by asking him about the creative similarities to Casualty. I created that 28 years ago, 29 years ago, and I have to say, since, people have said to me, can't you think of another medical drama? And I'm thinking, <laughs> no, I can't. Um, and it was recently, I mean, about three years, three or four years ago, I started thinking about that moment before the pill was it existed and before abortion was legal in Britain, uh, when being gay was illegal. Uh, that moment, 1961-62, really started to think, I started to think that was a really interesting time in terms of sexual politics and the, pol- the relationship between men and women more generally. I tried to find a way in and kept coming back to this idea that actually the most interesting stage to put it on would be through the eyes of a gynaecologist mm. because they are most intimately involved uh, in gynaecologists and obstetrics in both the problems women have in their sexual lives and the results thereof of, of, of babies. Um, so it, it, those two th- sort of things sort of came together. Um, I uh, pitched this to the BBC uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm for the idea. I wrote a, uh, a long-form outline, then I wrote the first mm-hmm. script, which is very different from the script we now have. Uh, and that was with the BBC for about a year before they said, uh, actually, we're not going to do this because of Call the Midwife. Mm. It went to ITV, who picked it up within 
flattering speed. Mm. Um, by the time they, they read it, and I think three weeks later, we were sort of beginning to be underway. Um, the, the, the point I want to make is it's not a medical drama. Mm. It's a drama with a medical background. What I really, really am about is a lot of characters, and the, char- the lives of the characters are all stories that weave and interweave around, going back to where I started, what it's like with yeah. before the pill, before abortion was yeah. legalised and so on. We've just, we've just watched the first um, episode. There was a, a, a packed room full of international buyers. Let's hope that's, uh, that's positive signs. One of the things that struck me about it was it's clearly you're setting up in this first episode multiple plots, as well as the, what you might expect, the issue around sort of abortion, illegal abortion. There's also quite a lot going on around social class and, um, and, and other elements. It's something you've, you're setting up a, a quite a, a, what feels like a popular drama, but also something with lots of different plot lines. Yes, no, I mean, my intention was that it was, uh, it's called Breathless, but I wanted it to be Breathless with Story. I wanted it to be to be, um, you know, captivating um, because so much is going on. Uh, I am very inspired by the long-form American dramas mm. at the moment, which tell long-form stories, and, and I feel quite privileged. And I think I'm one of the, 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 the first in Britain to be show-running a show, if, if that's the right word for it, where we really are telling a story that goes from beginning to end, or several stories. Mm. Um, the intention is that you are hooked by the lives of these people. As a consequence of that, I have the chance to discuss some of the things that really interest me. Yeah. But it's about characters, and it's about um, a group basically of seven or eight key characters and how they weave together. It's about their pasts, and it's about their futures. It's about how what they all desire is different from where they are. Where they've come from is also something they're all trying to shift and change about. Mm. I think it was true that the early 60s in Britain were a time where uh, Macmillan said, you've never had it so good, but people were really struggling to work out how to live in the post uh, after the war yeah. into our future. Yeah. So I think it's the last moment of then before now. That's how. So it's almost that, that period of time that really most attracted you and that sort of the, the, the shifting nature of that, that period of time. The, the, the period of time and what it, just because of the science, mm. what it did for women's lives. Mm. Before the pill, I mean, we do get someone, someone a patient, a, 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 a character does get the pill in the second, second episode, but it's about that moment of this new change coming yeah. in. And, you know, she says, I just want to be like a bloke. And that's a revolutionary idea. Yeah. So it was that moment before the pill and before yeah. abortion was legalised. You mentioned, Paul, um, the kind of showrunner role that you, you have on this. And obviously you, you've been involved um, over the years with Directors UK as well. I'm quite interested in, in what it is that you feel, how a drama can benefit from having maybe someone with a directorial vision at its, at its heart. Well, I, I'm lucky because I'm a writer and a director and a producer. Um, I think that uh, the look of a show and the way it evolves is very, very key to how it works in terms of the audience. Not just the taste, but also is it accessible or is it, does it somehow ask you to sit back and watch it? Are you invited into this world or are you kept at some distance? Uh, so I was very uh, keen to direct the first two mm. so that I could set up a look and a style which is... I hope attractive, but also uh, not, aspiration is not the right word, but a world you want to get into. I've then had the most remarkably uh, positive time working with the two two other directors, uh, Marek Lozzi and Philippa Langdale. Not only took on the show and worked with me closely, but 
truthfully, they made it better. They taught me, you know, I, 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 we did a Q&A the other day and I was saying, they showed me how my own show worked mm. by the way they directed it. So it's been, I, I, I can't take, you know, I can only take a little bit of the credit for the way that things worked out. Uh, and I have to say that going back to Directors UK, working with other directors on my own show has been the most collaborative and exciting and wonderful experience. So is, is there a bit of a fallacy then that, 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 that a showrunner needs to be an all-powerful figure at the start? Is it maybe that there's a, a creative vision that they can then um, they can pass on? Well, I think the job is to express a creative vision. I think if I was all-powerful, no one would be able to do their, 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 their work. What I've enjoyed most is watching other people take the material that I've written and bring it to life and do things which I go, oh, I never thought that. That's wonderful. I didn't see it that way. And that is what I think a showrunner should do. I think you should be over it. You should find the look. You should be telling the story, controlling what the stories are and having a sense of the long view of the stories, but working with other creatives to create something which is quite beyond what I can imagine or have thought up. So it's not just the, the other directors, it's the directors of photography, it's the design department, it's of course the producer. You know, there are lots of people who work alongside a, a showrunner. It's not a, it's not, it, I'm, I'm, I'm the first amongst equals, I think is the way I'd like to put it. Breathless creator Paul Unwin talking to our very own Chris Curtis. So we've taken the temperature of X Factor, checked the pulse of Strictly and thoroughly examined ITV drama Breathless. It's now time to turn the microscope on some other shows soon to hit the airwaves. We start with Stephen Fry out there, the presenter's deeply personal mission to confront homophobia around the world. The two-part documentary begins on BBC Two at 9pm on the 14th of October, and here's a clip from the first episode. Everybody believes they live in a lifetime of extraordinary change, um, but I feel I've got more reason to think it than most. The idea of the seedy, dirty, filthy queer was firmly entrenched in one's mind as one grew up. <clears throat> and as soon as I realised that that's what I was, which is very early, I think, it, it was naturally a sense of foreboding with which I um, anticipated adulthood. Is there anyone present who knows of any lawful reason why Andrew and Stephen may not form their civil partnership this afternoon? Splendid! <laughs> <laughs> to go from that situation to to this amazing day like today where you, you see a gay couple getting a civil partnership with the full blessing of the law and the charm and warmth of the registrars and the easygoing nature of the entire, the entire event. And that's a very profound thing, I think. Lisa, I found this quite a tough watch at times. What did you make of it? It was, but I think it's a really important topic and it's, and it's I haven't seen anything like this for... Well, I just haven't seen anything like this. I mean, it's it's very moving at times, and 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 it is a tough watch. And and, and in fact, I watched the the second episode as well, where um, in Brazil, um, you know, it, it opens with with gay pride, and it's all this amazing celebration. But there's this terrible undercurrent where um, there are someone is killed every other day um, on, on the back of a homosexual sort of hate crime, and um, one of them is a 14 year old boy. And it's a horrific story, you know, and he was tortured for, for two hours. And Stephen Fry interviews a politician who's trying to stop a law coming in um, and, and to teach children that, you know, that, that this is wrong. Um, and it's, it's a completely fascinating interview. It's very shocking. Yeah. Um, but, but, I mean, it's interesting production techniques-wise because they actually um, had the interpreter in, in another room with Stephen Fry with, a, with an earpiece in. So he's reacting immediately to 
the the mother speaking or you know in this you know in other cases in other languages and and um and so it's it's you get that emotional response from him and i think that really makes it very emotional response for the viewer as well stephen clearly went through a lot of turmoil during making during the process of making this it was clear i mean with the knowledge that stephen fry tried to commit suicide while actually making this documentary i mean it felt to me like it was almost a sort of onslaught on his uh on on him personally to a certain extent uh, and i don't know if the filmmakers ha- had had to take a bit more responsibility and perhaps step in i don't know where where he was um struggling and clearly very emotional on screen what because he was too close to the story i mean yeah. the because the, the iranian that he interviewed mm. and he says that you know he he was forced to leave and he can't go back to Iran now because, um, you know, to see his partner who he's with for four years because he'll be imprisoned or killed or whatever. And he said, I'd rather take my own life and at least I've got the choice. And, you know, Stephen Fry is in tears at that point. Um, and obviously, you know, it's, it's, it is a subject very close to him. I, I don't know. I, I didn't I didn't watch it thinking that the um, the filmmakers weren't didn't have a duty of care towards him. I, I think that was just he's displaying his emotion on, on camera and... You know, and I, I didn't feel it was exploitative at, at all. No, and I mean, I, it, you know, it was a tough watch, but I think it's it's important that we have we do have a, a tough watch sometimes. I mean, there's so much on TV which is warm and reassuringly British, and you know, like from Bake Off to to Strictly, and you know, we're we're not old people in a in a home with our knitted blankets and bowls of warm custard. You know, we if we want that, then you know, <laughs> which means two offers in other parts of the schedule. Yeah. So so an important piece of, uh, yeah. of work. Lisa's absolutely right. You know, these things need to be said. I, you know, it's only disappointing that we still have to say things like this. Yeah. But yeah, we you know you need to be uh, challenged and. And I thought Stephen's um, emotional uh, wrestle as he was confronted by these bigots, really, who you know the certainty of uh, of the bigot. Um, I thought his emotion was good, actually, and I thought it made it real, and I thought it made it um, uh, much more vibrant. And he succeeded, I think. He's a very clever man, obviously, but he succeeded in making the the uh, these guys, which were mostly men, look quite small. And I think that worked worked rather well. And they just really had no answer. Yeah. I thought it was rather good. Thank you, Stephen. Moving on. Uh, Dave's latest piece of original content, Ross Noble Freewheeling. It's billed as an anti-travelogue as comedian Noble takes directions from Twitter users who send him off to places never usually seen on TV. Noble hits the road on the 29th of October and here's a taste of his motorcycle adventures. Come to Cape Philly Castle, come and visit the Isle of Wight, come to Northern Ireland, come back to Cramlington, that's my hometown. Do you fancy coming to Hull for the Admiral's Ball, end of May, get dressed up like a sailor and meet the mayor? I always get slightly worried when somebody invites you to dress like a sailor. There's about five different middles of the country. The very centre of Britain is a quaint little village called Meridian. The centre of Britain is Holt Whistle between Carlisle and Newcastle. That's a great idea. Let's start in the middle of the country. And the nearest one is uh, Weedon. Right, let's start our journey at Weedon, which is the nearest centre of the country to where I am now. Let's go. Lisa, did this sort of scattergun, um, spontaneous approach work? Well, I, I really like the premise behind this. I love the random nature. You know, he's just on his bike and, you know, gets a gets a message from a Twitter follower, you know, come and 
come to my boring meeting and, you know, see what happens. And he, and he great, okay, off he goes. And, and I just, it, you know, it's unexpected and, and it's, you know, it must have been such a challenge for the production team um, because nothing's really properly planned or, or so it seems and he's just sort of acting on a whim all the time. And they, you know, and you see at one point the production team are sort of saying to him, you know, was that a success? And he, and he's, you know, because he turns up to the wrong place. And yeah, because it's so random, and it proves that it's so random. The person's not here. Oh, I don't know. But anyway, it was, it, it was. Uh, I think, I think it's a, I think it's a great idea. It feels, it feels quite original. It's a great way of incorporating Twitter in a way that's not just here's a hashtag. Yeah. Um, I'm just not sure it was as funny as it could have been. I thought it, it started off very funny, but sort of tapered off towards the end. Uh, but Ross Noble does wear it well, doesn't yes. he? Yeah, well, it's his thing, isn't it? He's sort of his sense of humour is no matter yeah, probably scripted, but uh, quite around. He's got quite the imagination. I watched it and I exactly the same. That that sort of I was a little bit tense because thinking, oh, please be funny, please hope this works out. But at least it's right that bit about um, well, he went to the wrong place. Well, this is random squared. Um, it's uh, and I and I was watching thinking this and I was sort of mentally going through the debate with him. Well, is this, yeah. does this count as random? <laughs> I suppose it does because it's so random. It's not even in the random part. And anyway, but so I I quite liked it. Yeah, um, you did feel the producer's hand at certain points. For example, when he went to see Eddie Izzard and he managed to sneak in uh, and yeah. meet up with his pal. I mean, it was it was all a little. I thought that was a little bit forced. Yeah, but then you know he's a comedian and he he's got to tap into his comedy yeah. mates and and that's that's all that's all part of it. You you kind of you know you want that, don't you? You want a bit of star factor because the rest of it is a what's that pot dog show in a Luton car park? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it can't get more low budget no, and a, a bit yes. grim than that. And the in the rain too. Fair. Yeah, that's yeah. it. In <laughs> the, rain, <laughs> the rain. I don't know. It looked really really cold and really really rain. It looked uh, horrible. Britain oh, looked grim, yeah. didn't yeah. it? The absolute the... opposite of Bake Off and yeah, that. Yeah, can't yeah. imagine it. <laughs> uh, thanks for joining us, uh, Stephen and Lisa. And thanks, too, to Chris in Cannes. We're calling time on this instalment of Talking TV. But fear not, you can catch us again in a fortnight. And don't forget to tell your friends about us, because goodness knows they're missing out. And with that, I'll leave you. My name's Jake Cantor. The producer was Peter Price. Until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to Broadcast. Talking TV. Recorded at Maple Street Studios. 